Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage, the Economist Science and Technology podcast. I'm Tim Cross, science correspondent for the paper. This week, we get touchy-feely with glass, as one of the oldest materials in the world gets a makeover. The end product now that's used on many smartphones is less than a millimetre thick, and yet it can survive a drop, you know, most times from quite a height. And we explore the perennial question of why you're attracted to the people you're attracted to. Could it be related to smell? And if not, might your parents have something to do with it? So there's a lot of evidence, weirdly, that humans are attracted to people that look like themselves. First up, though, is childbirth. Around 10% of pregnancies are complicated enough that mothers need a caesarean section. But these days, more and more mothers are choosing to have the surgery. In countries like Brazil, Italy or Iran, more than 40% of babies are delivered that way. But there's also an increasing body of research that suggests caesarean sections can pose problems for the newborn. My fellow science correspondent Matt Kaplan is writing a story on this. Hi, Matt. Hi, Tim. How's it going? I'm good, thanks. So we said that C-sections might be harmful for the baby, but how, how specifically are they, are they harmful? We know that children who are born via cesarean section are more likely to develop disorders like obesity, asthma, and allergies. And many researchers have speculated that that is because the bacteria in their guts is different from the bacteria found in the guts of children who are born via the normal birth canal rather than being lifted up through the belly. And um, that's been difficult to test because is it actually the cesarean section or is it in fact the fact that people are given antibiotics when they're given the cesarean section that's killing off the bugs in their guts and therefore throwing their bacterial colonies out of whack later on in life. And this new paper that you've been writing about, that's looking at the question of obesity specifically. Yeah, the researchers said, okay, look, there's a lot of things going on here. Let's narrow it down to one condition Do animals, because you can't do this in women, if you ask a woman to have a cesarean section without antibiotics, you're going to run into trouble, ethics problems. So they decided to look at mice and they said, look, if we have mice that are giving birth both naturally and via cesarean section, do we see mice that are born via cesarean section packing on more, more grams as they get older than mice that are born via natural childbirth? And so what did they find out? Mice that are born via cesarean section without antibiotics do end up obese. This was particularly notable in females. So uh, her weight was up to 70% greater at 15 weeks of age than that of a female mouse that was born via a normal birth. Males were higher in weight too. It just wasn't quite as notable. So that suggests that merely the process of conducting a cesarean section causes the bacteria in the guts of an animal to be changed. And indeed, they actually looked at that too. They collected feces from all of these mice to monitor whether or not the bacteria in their guts were different. And sure enough, at 15 weeks of age, the bacteria in the mice that were born via cesarean section 
uh, were very different from the bacteria that were found in the mice born naturally. So if it's not the antibiotics, what is changing the gut flora of these mice then? Do they have any ideas? Yeah. So you have kids. Were you in the delivery room when your kids were born? I was. Okay. Do you remember there being some poop before the kids were born? My kids were born by C-section. My wife uh, gave birth naturally, and uh, there was definitely poop before the baby came out. And this is normal and natural, and the fact that the baby is sliding through that canal and having exposure to all of this fecal matter just when they're born has long been hypothesized to be important for seeding their digestive system with, with bacteria from the mother's guts. So it's a feature in the birth process rather than a bug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's absolutely the way it's supposed to be done. And, and many people have speculated about that. But here we have a really clear example whereby the researchers are showing it's not that we're killing off the bacteria in the newborn with antibiotics, although that certainly is making the problem worse. We know antibiotics mess up gut bacteria development. But the fact that the child is not getting that initial shot of bacteria from their mother looks like it is really problematic and potentially causing much of the obesity epidemic that we see in the world today. And so that's interesting. And more importantly, it's a relatively easy fix. Uh, think about it. You can collect feces from a mother who is giving birth via C-section and potentially swab the child with that material right at birth to artificially create that birth canal experience. That sounds gross, but if it staves off obesity, it seems like a small price to pay. So Matt, we should point out that this work was done in mice rather than, than people. And work that's done in mice often translates to humans, but not always. Do we know uh, whether this is going to hold true in people? We don't, not yet. But you know, this is an important point because Dr. Dominguez Bello, who's running most of this research, is currently running an experiment with human babies, some of whom have been born via natural birth and some of whom have been born via C-section, and collecting a material from the birth canal tract and all the mothers, and then swabbing the mouths and noses and ba of babies with it, and then monitoring them over years to see how their gut microbiota develops, and more importantly, whether they develop immune disorders like asthma, allergies, and also issues like obesity. And so while we don't have the data yet on humans, we're going to have it soon. And um, you know, mice aren't men, but we're going to have the data on this, and that's pretty cool. Sounds like something we should probably come back to. Thanks very much, Matt. My pleasure, Tim. Next up, the art of glassmaking. Humans have been tinkering with the basic recipe of sand, soda and lime for thousands of years. You can add lead if you want extra sparkle or cobalt to tint your glass blue. But these days, it's not just the aesthetics that we're after. We want glass that's strong but thin, scratch-proof, and which won't smash when you drop it from a height of about 1.6 metres. What do you think I'm talking about? Gorilla glass. That's Paul Markilli, the Economist Innovation Editor. And although Gorilla Glass was invented 10 years ago, it's evolving once again. Before we get to that, though, a bit of history. Gorilla Glass itself uh, was invented about 10 years ago. It came in with the, uh, the original iPhone. But am I right in thinking that the basic recipe, which was invented by a company called Corning, is much older than that? It goes back about 50 years. Yes, it does. Um, it goes back to the uh, 1960s and carried on for a few years after that because it was uh, initially seen as a strong, lightweight glass for lots of industrial uses, including the automobile industry as a windscreen in cars. But it never really took off because uh, weight saving then wasn't really a priority for car makers. 
And because it's called Gorilla Glass, people often focus on how strong it is. But one of the points is it has to be very thin, is that right? Not just to keep the weight down, but also because your smartphone, your touchscreen wouldn't work otherwise. In portable devices, yes, that's true. You do need to have a very thin glass for the one of the techniques used to detect where your finger is. But it's also a consequence of the device makers, as we know, wanting skinnier and skinnier devices. So they want things smaller and they want things lighter. So the end product now that's used on many smartphones is less than a millimetre thick, and yet it can survive a drop, you know, most times uh, from quite a height. And how do you make glass that does that, that's thin and strong? Well, it's a combination of material science and a few tricks of engineering. I mean, basically, they melt up a certain composition of glass that's uh, rather specialised, and then they pour that into a thing that looks like a big V-shaped trough, and it overflows either sides, meets at the bottom, fuses together, and becomes a very thin sheet falling vertically. And then that sheet is put through a chemical bath process in which atoms are exchanged uh, within its structure. And that compresses it and makes it incredibly strong. So despite the name, though, and despite the strength and despite all the high-tech manufacturing that goes into it, you know, phones still get broken. You know, I've had uh, kids break the screen on my phone, for instance, and they dropped it from much less than 1.6 metres up. Is this stuff getting better? Can we, can we do better than what we have at the moment? Oh, I think we need to. I took the phone back once because I drove over it in my Land Rover and it cracked in half. I mean, eventually all glass will break, but this, this is immensely tough stuff. And it can go beyond electronic devices. The big one of the big markets its calling seasons in cars, which originally was the, the one of the intended markets, particularly car windscreens. The new Ford GT is using Gorilla Glass in it. And now car makers are worried about weight, because if you can save weight, you get more miles per gallon. Or if you've got an electric car, you can actually go further. And it's not just the windscreen, you know, it's the, the windows around the outside. And also, of course, the dashboards themselves, which are becoming virtually glass cockpits. All these fancy touchscreens. All fancy touchscreens. And you can mould them in and make them look very sexy and very inviting and very grippy. Oh, gorgeous. So it's going full circle. They invented it for the car industry and now, half a century later, the car industry is finally interested. That's right. And it's all to do with uh, weight and efficiency. And of course, we can do a lot more other things with it as well. We can put electronics in it so it dims. We can put virtual reality images in the glass. And if we no longer drive cars anymore, we can just sit there and admire the view. I'll raise a glass to that. Nice lead crystal, I suggest. And finally, have you ever wondered why you're attracted to a certain type of man or woman? Perhaps you find green eyes or blonde hair irresistible. Yet another of our legion of science correspondents, Anano Bhattacharya, has been looking into the biological laws of attraction when it comes to eye colour and smell. So, I want to know, why smell? What's the theory there? The theory here is that there is a region of the chromosome called the major histocompatibility complex, the MHC. And these genes are involved with our immune response. So the idea is that in some way we should seek out partners who have MHC genes that are different to our own. The idea is we can somehow detect this by how they smell. Yes. And my understanding is there's a new study out this week that looked into this and said maybe this theory doesn't quite smell as good as we'd hoped. Yes. 
In a variety of animals, ranging from mice to fish to lizards, they have shown that male and female animals do seek out a partner with MHC genes that are very different from their own. So Dr. Yannick Lobmeyer of the University of Bern wanted to look at whether men do in fact sniff out women with different MHCs. And so what was the answer? Does it work? In short, no. He found women who were at their most fertile as measured by a fertility test. He got them to donate odours. He gave men eight of these pads to sniff, four from women who had very different MHCs and four from women who had very similar ones. Overall, he found absolutely no correlation at all between differences in the genes and which odours men found attractive. But there's quite an important nitpick with this study, isn't there? Because he was only looking at male mate choice, in other words, what men found attractive. And you might expect, you know, given that women have to go to all the trouble of actually carrying the baby, they might be a bit pickier than men are. That's right. I mean, even the evidence on whether women are attracted to mates using um, odours in, in humans is a bit mixed. Okay, so staying with the slightly creepy theme, we'll go from smell to whether it's all to do with your parents. This was another study that came out this same week looking at eye colour, specifically your parents' eye colour, and what that tells you about who you might be attracted to. So there's a lot of evidence, weirdly, that humans are attracted to people that look like themselves. But there are a few different theories as to why that might be. One uh, hypothesis is that uh, we tend to be attracted to the characteristics that we exhibit. Secondly, that we inherit our preferences from our parents, particularly those of the same sex as us. Because my dad was attracted to my mum, I would therefore be attracted to people who look a bit like my mum because I inherit that preference from my dad. Exactly, exactly. And then there's the last idea, which is uh, it's called sexual imprinting. And this is that we pick up our preferences by viewing the uh, parent of the sex that we find attractive. So a heterosexual man would uh, pick up uh, all of his cues about what he might find attractive from his mum. So this is the sort of Freudian angle. And so how did Dr. De Bruin sift between these theories? The difficulty in general is that for heterosexual men and women, um, it's very difficult to disentangle the hypothesis that we inherit our preferences from the hypothesis that suggests it's imprinting, because in both cases you end up being attracted to people with the characteristics of your opposite sex parent. So if I'm attracted to women like my mother, it's hard to tell whether that's because I inherited that preference from my dad or because I got my idea of what an attractive woman should look like from my mum. Yeah, that's right. So Dr. De Bruin found a very clever way to disentangle that. What she did was she asked 300 men and women their eye colour, the eye colour of their partners and the eye colour of their parents. Half of those men and women were homosexual and the other half were heterosexual. So if the imprinting hypothesis is right, the idea is you would expect gay men to imprint on their fathers rather than their mothers. Yeah, exactly. And did they? Well, when uh, Dr. De Bruin crunched the numbers, she found that it was a slam dunk for the imprinting hypothesis, which would mean, Tim, that your partner would have a similar eye colour to your mum. Is that true? 
Well, rather shamefully, I can't remember off the top of my head <laughs> what colour my mum's eyes are. I think it's true. Presumably it also means that statistically your partner's got dark eyes. Uh, that doesn't really work. My mum had uh, dark brown eyes like me and my wife has very light bluish greyish eyes. So you're the exception uh, to yep. the st- statistical rule. Uh, in- indeed, yeah. So Freud was mostly right, but not always. It, appear, it appears so. What a lovely thought to finish the programme on. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> no problem, Tim. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, that's it for this week's Babbage. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share the love by rating us on whatever app you use to listen. I'm Tim Cross, and thanks very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.